you don't have to be down and out, I reckon. It's like investing in mental health is not just for people who are contemplating suicide or or, or are struck down with depression or uh, racked with anxiety and they can't get out of bed. It's not just about that. <laughs> You're listening to Trade Mutt's 120 Grit Podcast, the podcast for the working class, hosted by Dan Allen and Ed Ross, the co-founders of Trade Mutt. If you're a fan of Trademarts 120 Grit, we'd love to hear what you think. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or shoot us an email at admin at trademart.com. David Shillington is a former Australian professional rugby league prop forward who played for the Sydney Roosters, Canberra Raiders and the Gold Coast Titans. He also played for Queensland at state of origin level and represented his country for the Kangaroos. We have an incredible chat with Shillow including the defining moment that significantly changed the course of his career his experience as a professional athlete and the work that he is now doing in retirement promoting conversations around mental health. But first, here's a message about our legendary sponsors who make this podcast for the working class possible. QuoteSpec is the newest building and construction quoting app created and designed by a working builder. Produce job-winning professional quotes in minutes with QuoteSpec's cloud-based quoting software. Get your free trial at www.quotespec.com. And be prepared to get your life back. Get it back. All right. Well, thanks, Rossi, for handing it over to me, mate. We're back in the studio today, 120 Grit, the podcast for the working class. Today, as usual, we've got a very special guest. It's not often that they're Every not, week. They're not, we haven't had a non-special guest We haven't yet. had a non-special <laughs> one yet. So we have got an ex-NRL player from the Roosters, the Raiders, the Titans, the Maroons, and the Kangaroos. And he's Strayer. Strayer, and he's wearing a Burley Bears hat. Welcome, <laughs> Dave Shillington. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to have you in, mate. Yeah, cheers. So why are you wearing a Burley Bears hat? Well, I had a few mates that play for that team, and they won the um, ISC Grand Final on Sunday. They beat Wynnum in a pretty spectacular game, actually. It was high quality, and um, the Bears got up by a couple of tries in the end, so I was pretty happy for the boys. Uh, they go on to the national final uh, this weekend, and uh, I'll be cheering them all week long. Bloody oath, bloody oath. Yeah, well, it's a big weekend for football. Bloody oath. It's big. What was the crowd like out there? It was good. It sold out. I think it was about um, 7,500 people, roughly. And uh, we were just joking before, they're, they're a working-class sort of crowd, not your not your normal NRL crowd, definitely not a rugby union crowd, that's for sure. <laughs> not, no uh, RMs, and, <laughs> RMs and Wrangler jeans. No, that's right. And... Uh, there were some Wyndham uh, Seagulls fans uh, just near where we were sitting and, and they had a belly full of Forex and the whole game, they were, you know, there'd be 12 guys there and six of them would yell out, Wyndham, and the other six would yell out, Seagulls. <laughs> they did that for the uh, for the rest of the game. So I feel, like, I feel like I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> part, of the, part of the day. Uh, Mate, uh, yeah, so we're excited to have a chat today. Uh, first professional athlete I think we've had on. I don't think of any athletes. We've, oh, we it's had... Mick Gould, an athlete? He's not an athlete. No. We had Cam Campling on cycling, but we, we had a national recognisable face in the studio today, yeah. which is great. A big moment. But, uh, yeah, we want to, you know, touch on a range of things, um, you know, and just basically get people to understand that professional sports make humans too, basically, and they, they've got a whole range of emotions that they go through during their, their career. Um, but your career started off uh, down in Sydney, but you're a Brisbane boy, so run us, run us through that. Yeah, so I was really lucky to get picked up by the uh, the Sydney Roosters when I finished school. So um, they put me at the Redcliffe Dolphins for one year on scholarship. And then uh, big Artie Beetson um, thought that I um, might have a bit of potential. He brought me down to Sydney and uh, gave, me a, gave me a three-year contract down there. And I worked my way through the grades. Um, 
didn't quite get to the top at first because uh, when I was about 20, I, I busted my knee, unfortunately, and I was staring down the barrel of returning home to Brisbane with my uh, with my tail between my legs, to be honest. I was feeling like a bit of a failure. Uh, but thankfully, uh, my mum gave me a bit of encouragement and said, oh, um, ring the club and, and ask for one more year. And I thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. I know the, the CEO, Brian Cannon, pretty well. He, he feels like a bit of a friend as well as my employer. So I called him and um, said, oh, look, I don't think I've reached my potential and, and you guys sign me on potential. Give me one more year to, to really get there and I'll give it my all. And he said, oh, Sheila, I think you know, I agree with you. It sounds right. We want to give you another year. But ultimately, Ricky Stewart makes those conditions, those, those decisions. And because Ricky was the head coach at the time. Um, but as a 20-year-old, um, getting coached by Ricky Stewart, it was bloody scary. <laughs> Even though I was twice his size. he um, <laughs> Oh, sticky. <laughs> he was an angry man. He'd walk out into the training field every day and spit and swear and give us an absolute flogging most days. <laughs> so I was petrified of him. Um, and I thought, you know what, stuff it. I'm not even going to have that conversation with Ricky. I'm just going to move home and, and not worry about it's it. It's not worth <laughs> it. It's not worth it. But my mum gave me a bit of a kick up the bum and said, no, nah, just go for it. You'll regret it if you don't do it. And so I thought, oh, bugger it. Here, here goes nothing. And I, and I went up to Ricky and asked him, I said, oh, mate, you know, I haven't reached my potential. Can I have one more year and I'll give it everything? And, and he just sort of glanced at me half-heartedly and just went, uh, I'll have a think about it. Uh, come and see me Sunday. I'll let you know. And so it was the longest week ever, and um, we had an away game down in Canberra, actually, and uh, Ricky was watching uh, the uh, the Raiders reserve grade um, take on the Rooster reserve grade, and so I, I shuffled over to him on the sideline, and in my deepest voice, I said, oh, Ricky, have you made a decision on my new contract yet? <laughs> and he, go, he looked at me just this a little bit. I'm not even sure if he, he saw me that well, but he goes, uh, oh, uh, yeah, mate, yeah, we'll give you one more year. And just <laughs> went back to watching the game. Uh, you <laughs> prob- you probably thought you were someone else. <laughs> yeah. He might have thought I was Anthony Minicello, I don't oh. know. But, uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I was, I was happy as Larry and, and trotted off. And um, that off-season and the pre-season just ripped in and uh, did my best and ended up um, debuting in first grade the next year. So forever thankful. Uh, Mum gave me a kick up the bum and I, I had that courage. And, and obviously for Ricky and, and Brian Canavan for uh, rewarding me with one more year. Were you evaluating what your other options were if you hadn't have gone up to ricky stewart were you like making other contingency plans in your head like oh you know i can always just go and do this or what yeah i had started uni doing a teaching degree so um i always wanted to be a teacher simply because of the holidays they got 10 or 12 weeks <laughs> holidays every year and i thought how good a life is this uh but um yeah i'm glad i went up to ricky and and asked him and uh, so I'll, I'll always, you know, I got went on to play 11 years first grade after that. So um, I'll always be thankful of, of that moment. Bit of a turning point, I suppose, early on in your career. Yeah, it was almost all over before it started. And um, I think as, as young people or people of all ages, you, you, there's so much, um, so much trepidation or, or fear factor in a lot of things we do. And it, it scares us away from doing a lot of things we're passionate about in life or things we'd like to try. So, um, yeah, I like sharing that story and hopefully it inspires others to, uh, to do the same. Bloody oath, mate. Bloody oath. Do you and think you realised how, you know, how close to not having a f- football career you might have been, you know, like at that time yeah. and how injuries can just take it away, you know, yeah. so quickly? Yeah, it's one of those things you sort of, uh, uh, you know, when you realise you don't realise what you got until it's gone. I was really taking my footy career um, for granted. Uh, I got signed as, as as like the next big front row, I guess, coming through and got to play junior kangaroos and the, and the Roosters had extended my contract. It was originally two years and they extended another year and put me on really good money back then and, and were grooming me to be a first grader. So I felt like I was on a trajectory and on, on a path uh, to be a first grade footballer. Uh, but then, um, yeah, I wasn't playing good footy in the end and um, I hurt my knee and 
uh, didn't have much going for me then. So it was all sort of looking like it was going to get taken away from me. But uh, thankfully, I just survived. Who was it? Was um, Durali Aoye, was it? Yeah, he had that he's an awful knee. injury. Knee. Yeah. 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 And uh, he, he was one of the best players getting around and then for yeah, him incredible. to get it all ripped away from him just due to chronic injury. He yeah. was only young, mid, mid-20s. But he had that one big injury, didn't he? Like he it was a knee. Blew, was it a knee? Yeah, right. Yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, yeah uh, it's just incredible how for every player that makes it and has a long and 11-year career, there's that many players out there who it's their dream, you know, their whole lives and it's just, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It, the um, the conversion rate or success rate, I guess, um, it's, it's pretty slim. And you, you think there's... Tens of thousands of people playing uh, junior footy every year from under sixes all the way into the seniors. And uh, once you get in the system, only a few players who play in the 20s end up playing in first grade. Mm. And of those guys who make it to first grade, only a handful of them play more than a few years of first grade. Yeah, so well, I saw a stat that was it was something like the average NRL career is about 40 games. It is, less yeah. than two seasons, yeah. average career. So you think Cam Smith's played 420 games. That's rude. <laughs> it's incredible. Like, yeah. yeah, tenfold. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think many people would actually know that, that it's that slim. Um, the other thing I was talking about on the weekend, actually, was the amount of people that have the talent but don't go on with it. Yeah. Because it's a big commitment. You've it got is. to give up your, your weekend with your mates because, you know, that early stage is your 18, 19, your, your mates are going out – they're either starting apprenticeships, going to uni, they're getting on the booze every weekend, they're chasing women around. You know, you're having to train rigorously, you're a professional athlete, uh, and you've got to get up for a game that could be on a Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, you, oh, you make so many sacrifices. You, uh, you got that real um, battle of, oh, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm 21, I've got all these birthday parties to go to, all my friends are doing this, how, ca- how come I can't do it? And uh, whilst it's easy for an older person to look down those young people and go, oh, mate, you've got this great opportunity uh, who cares about that stuff? Just play your footy and you'll be rewarded. You don't see that when you're a young person. Um, you've got to learn through some mistakes to, to gain that wisdom. So, uh, yeah, I missed a hell of a lot of 18th and 21st um, weddings and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so, but And, and at, at the time, you do feel like you're missing out. And you often see that's where people get in trouble. Like they see the Broncos guys the other week playing the pokies and in, relaxing and enjoying themselves and thinking like they're not um, hurting anyone or anything and... Um, and that's what most people were doing on a Saturday night. Young people yeah. were out there having a beer and playing pokies. Um, exactly, yeah. yeah. Having a little slap. Yeah. Having <laughs> his laptop. No free spins. Yeah. Classic. No. Classic. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're at the Raiders, at the, at the Roosters, and then you made the, the journey up to the nation's capital for the mighty milk. How was, uh, how was that transition? Oh, it was pretty hectic. I, I lived um, in Sydney in the eastern suburbs there for seven years. Uh, so I had a Great circle of friends. Um, lived in uh, in Clavelli on the east side there. That look, unit looked out over the ocean. And uh, after training, you'd come down and go for a swim and run with into a few mates. Swim with the groper. Yeah, that's it. The yeah. blue groper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, so it was a great life. I loved it. And then uh, I signed with the Raiders. And I remember when I announced it actually uh, at, at Roosters training. I said, "Oh, boys, just so you know, um, before you hear in, hear in the media, I signed with the Raiders." And a heap of boys applauded me. But then a couple were like, "Canberra." How are you going to move down there? They always offer you heaps of money. You don't take a butt. What are you thinking? <laughs> but for me, they offered me a four-year deal. At, at the Roosters at the time, I was stuck behind uh, Willie Mason, Nate Miles, Mark O'Mealy, and I was trying to get into that um, starting front row spot. And I didn't know if I could do it uh, at the Roosters in the near future at the time. So um, so it was a great opportunity for me. And uh, But I had that great life in Sydney, and then I moved down to Canberra. I only knew one other person there, Nigel Plum. 
Um, <laughs> he, he just got married and had a baby, so he was out of action. I couldn't hang out with him and, and go for a beer or have a coffee. Uh, and instead of looking out over the ocean and enjoying my view, I looked at a, a government building across the road for me all day. They've got so a really nice water feature in the lake there, don't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the name of the lake? I can't oh, even think. I was yeah. just down there. Don't know. Anyway. And they've got but the mint. That's pretty bloody entertaining to go and hang out That's at. That's right. Get a yeah. coin made. Yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I've always been interested in that when people transition from one team to another. Like we, you were obviously from Brisbane, so you weren't a Roosters supporter when you were growing up. No, and it was funny because um, all my mates from Brizzy, uh, they used to fly down and, and come to the games and wear Roosters jerseys and cheer on the Roosters. And uh, and then I, I rang them as well when I when I signed with the Raiders. And I said, boys, just so you know, I signed with Canberra, so I'm leaving the Roosters. And uh, one of the boys went, oh, thank God, we fucking hated supporting the Roosters. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, that, awesome. They were happy for me, these boys. So, um, uh, look, a lot of Queensland people, I think, uh, do like the Raiders. They always say they're their second favourite team, thanks to people like Mel Meninga and Gary yeah, Belcher yeah, yeah. and Steve Wallace from back in the day. They they won over a lot of Queensland fans. So, um, yeah, everyone was really happy for me moving down there. When was, when yeah. you um, announced that that you're moving to your current teammates, is there a bit of, you know, are they sort of like... Oh, what are you doing, Sheila? Your dog. Like, nah, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's all business, I guess, isn't yeah, it, really? It's the nature of the beast. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite clear that I, I was up against some really experienced um, forwards at the Roosters, and I was I was still only twenty four or five then. So, and these guys like William Mason and Mark O'Mealy, they were in their prime and uh, representative players. And, uh, and yeah, I was trying to get my spot in the team, and uh, that side was so heavily stacked. I just needed to look elsewhere. It must be hard moving like that down to the Raiders with no mates, really. Yeah, know, sort of on your own, and you know, trying to perform well but also kind of build a life for yourself as well a bit hey yeah oh and this is one of those things where you people look from the outside go uh what an opportunity you should be happy as larry got this four-year um contract and like i was was well paid and looked after but i was also in the middle of nowhere in my mind i didn't know anyone Uh, winter came around it was bloody cold you couldn't go outside before 10 in the morning and four in the harbor (laughs) so uh and i missed all my family and my friends uh I'd broken up with a girlfriend at the time, so I really was by myself down there. I remember um, when I flew home to Queensland a couple of times on weekends off or the off-season, and uh, and I'd hang out with all my old schoolmates and sit on the back deck with mum and dad and have a coffee or a beer and just and relax. And I loved it so much that uh, when I got on the plane to fly back down into Canberra when we started descending, I, I used to get really emotional about it and think, oh, what am I doing down here? Mm even though that's what I wanted to be doing is playing football front row for the Raiders and, and I had a great opportunity. So it was really, it was mixed emotions. And um, yeah, whilst I, I felt like I should have life sorted and I should be um, really happy about that sort of stuff, I was also um, missing all my family and mates and all those normal things that we do as humans. That's such a common thing too, like people that are perceived to be successful are still going through all that sort of stuff, yeah, you know, and it's it it hap- yeah, it can happen to anyone. And like we've spoken about it before with the Greg Inglis thing, you know, people are just like, how the hell could that bloke be upset? You know, he's been on a million bucks a year since he was at the you know started the rabbits, yeah, in like two thousand and nine or whatever it was. Like shit, yeah, how could you be upset? But uh, yeah, yeah. it does not discriminate, you know. That's right. Yeah, well, because they played at the Titans, got to play alongside uh, Ash Taylor, and uh, it was pretty well documented this year that he, he had a few struggles and had to take some time away from the game and. Um, yeah, it really upset me when I saw this Daily Telegraph article and uh, one of the journalists, uh, uh, Paul Kent, 
he basically just tried to iron out Ash and just said, oh, this bloke's on a million dollars a year. He's part of this new generation that are a bunch of softies, really, and they need to be maybe um, told to harden up a bit. And I just thought, that's, that's just the craziest thing that in this modern day you'd link someone's salary with their happiness and they yeah. think, oh, well, if I have a lot of money, I'll be happy, or if I'm poor, I won't be happy. It's just uh, it's such a bizarre thought to say someone should be happy because they're on a million dollars a year. Oh, I wonder crazy. if Paul Kent's ever been through any struggles. Yes. You know? Well, he's such yeah. an angry little bastard. You probably think he's gone through something. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't smile much. Yeah. But what a simple equation. If I just get some more money, I'll be a little bit happier. Yeah. Well, there's a, the, the, yeah. the studies are out and, and it's something like if you earn anything over 90K, your, your happiness doesn't improve. Yeah. It's like that's yeah. the cutoff for a salary yeah. of where happiness sort of ends. It doesn't get any better. Well, you need you to know? go and interview every person that's ever won the lotto and see yeah, you know, how well it's turned out for them all, right? Mm. It's, it's really brought a lot of people unstuck. Yeah, you know? I know. We were, we were talking earlier, uh, Shiloh, about um, an interesting thing that you had happen when you are at the Roosters uh, with, with your coach there, um, Freddie Fittler. Mm. Run, us, run us through that. Yeah, I think um, it was one of those... Um, significant parts of my career that I always look back on and, and love sharing with people. And uh, it, was, it was around 2008 there, and uh, I, was, I was probably struggling a little bit down the Roosters, not feeling um, like I was included in the team or a real big part of it, maybe a bit of imposter syndrome, like I wasn't um, worthy of being like in that um, Sydney Roosters first grade team. Uh, even though I was picked there every week, I didn't feel... Yeah, I just didn't, didn't really feel up to it. and um, So it felt like you were making numbers up a bit? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't pulling my way. Just really critical of my performance all the time, thinking I'm just not good enough, if I'm really honest with myself. I don't know how they're picking me. Wow. Uh, and and because of that, I was really sort of isolating myself, just keeping to myself and um, probably a bit erratic and drinking too much, that sort of stuff, and things that um, my coach at the time, uh, Brad Fittler, noticed. And And – and I'll always be thankful that he came up to one day at training and he said, oh, Sheila, I noticed you're not quite yourself, mate. You know, is, is everything okay? And I said, oh, I'm fine, mate. And he goes, well, it's okay if it's not. And have you thought about getting some professional support? And I went, what do you mean? Like like a counsellor or a psychologist? <laughs> I laughed it off and I said, I'm six foot five, 115 kilo front row for the Roosters. I don't need any uh, emotional support. Thank you very much. Uh, but then he said something that changed everything. And he said, well, why don't you see the guy that I see? Like the guy you see, you're you're Brad Filler. You got life sorted. And he goes, yeah. Well, you, know, you, you don't have to be down and out to see someone. I, I check in with this guy regularly, and he's fantastic. We get each other. He understands me, and and you might enjoy chatting to him, get a bit out of it. And I thought, well, you know what? If it's good enough for you, it's definitely good enough for me. Yeah. And uh, I, I went around the corner to Centennial Park and and saw a guy called Angus, um, and he sort of just saw um, uh, clients or patients, whatever you say, um, from time to time out of his unit. And, uh, and I went in there and sat on the couch as you do, and, uh, but I still had my guard up and he was like, Dave, what, what brings you here today, mate? And I went, oh, nothing really. I'm fine. And he goes, well, you must have come for a reason. And I went, oh, not really. Freddie, I walked tell, all Freddie the way. tell me to. <laughs> yeah, I walked all the way here just to sit here and take up some of your time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he used some sort of um, counsellor, psychologist, wizardry, and he just kept juicing uh, information out of me, reframing questions, and all of a sudden just got me talking and... Uh, and I let my guard down and, and it just started flowing out and, um, and it, it just felt so good. And I went from someone who refused to say anything to um, talking and talking and him tapping on his watch going, well, that's an hour, mate. I've got other people to see. You probably have to go now. And I was like, wait, I've still got more to say. Sit back down. Uh, and, and, I, and I loved it. It felt like just a release and, um, and a relief, I guess, to, to talk to somebody uh, about it, about the embarrassment, I guess, or the confusion of, of why I'm not 
um, love and life and um, and proud of myself and comfortable in my own skin, all that sort of stuff. And uh, and so I went back and saw him, uh, not every week or anything, probably another half a dozen times over that season. Uh, and and I always draw a pretty pretty straight line from that sort of investment in my mental health uh, to how my career rose as a rugby league player too. Um, besides everything off the field, just talking about footy. The next year, I wanted to play for the Maroons, play for Australia just really enjoying and loving my footy. And I guess I had that, that physical side of thing uh, worked out like you do. You train 30 hours a week uh, lifting weights and running on the field. But now I had the mental side of things worked out too. And when it came together, it just helped me play really good footy. So I'll always be thankful of, uh, of Freddie having that conversation with me, um, but also for myself uh, for letting that guard down because yeah, too often uh, we've got to be tough men and, and uh, project a strong image. But uh, if you let your guard down... It bloody feels good. That's incredible. <laughs> There'd be a lot of blokes that are listening to this thinking, holy shit. You know, yeah, you know, you're six foot, what, eight? <laughs> okay. 120 kilos, big framed motherfucker. And you're talking about going and seeing a psychologist and there'd be a lot of blokes out there thinking, yeah, I'm too tough for that. So, yeah. Do you reckon that mate, experience changed you or not? I mean, obviously your, your football trajectory, you know, just exploded, but... Yeah. Uh, your mentality, I mean, we talk about help-seeking behaviour a lot for blokes and that process. I find it funny how you would have gotten your car, you would have gone to that unit, even though you had no idea what you wanted to talk about, but yep. you just sort of were drawn to go there for there some reason. There was something you had to, yeah. And when you're there, you're caged up and it's like, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't need to be here. Like, you know, yeah. what are you doing here? Like, you know, it's pretty cool. Well, it's, it's a funny thing and um, <laughs> it's amplified in sport. Uh, of how, uh, as men, we're sort of trained to be. And, and physically, on the field, uh, we're always taught uh, from our coaches uh, to never show any weakness, never show any pain or fatigue or anything like that. So it could be the 78th minute of the game, you're absolutely knackered, uh, but when you walk into that scrum, uh, you breathe through your nose, don't even open your mouth, don't put your hands on your hips, don't put your hands on your head, uh, don't keel over, just you put your chest out, shoulders back, uh, and and just carry on like you're not hurt, you're not tired, and you can make the next tackle just fine. And part of it is just probably psych out the team a little bit, but you just don't want to be a target as well. If you're if you're blowing hard and you and you're showing it, they the next set they're going to be running at you all day long, hoping you're going to make a mistake. So you're taught just to not show any sort of pain or discomfort whatsoever. And I think if you're doing that physically, you start doing that emotionally as well. So sounds like there's probably a fair Martin few. Russell. Fair few players, maybe you know, currently in the NRL, just in general, that could really you know benefit from embracing that you yeah. know yeah. That, that mental side of the game, right? Absolutely, and, 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 and yourself as much as anything. Yeah, and we're taught as well just to brush off everything all the time and like a she'll be right sort of attitude. And uh, and don't get me wrong, there are times and places to do that. You don't want to um, pour your heart out to everybody. Uh, when you're walking around the street. You know, An emotional it, tap. Otherwise yeah. it loses its effect. <laughs> yeah, but it is important, yeah, to turn that tap and, and get a release uh, from time to time, whether that's uh, with a professional or it's calling up your dad or it's um, going for a quiet beer with your mate or taking the dog for a walk with your mate, like wh- whatever, however you want to get that release, uh, it's important to do that, um, yeah, where appropriate. It's it's interesting that that happened, uh, you know, 2008, so you've already been a few years in Europe league career uh so there wasn't anything early on when your development years going to the roosters or into the nrl that it was sort of this is should be something at front of mind to be looking after your mental state and your, your how you're feeling mentally um as as well as physically it wasn't something that was on the you know radar yeah no we never um those conversations were never had 
And I, I joke around saying, oh, you know, in the early days of playing their role, if you if you talked about your emotions, you'd get laughed out of the, the change rooms. But um, but the reality is, I guess you wouldn't talk about your emotions because you didn't know how to. Um, so it wasn't just getting judged. Um, we didn't understand what depression or anxiety was, and you might just think you're you're hyper nervous and jittery, or you're you're just sad, or <laughs> you didn't really know how to explain it. Uh, so it, it's it's changed a whole lot uh, in that respect, and it was probably around. Um, uh, late in my career, probably 2010, 2012, the, the, the environment really started to shift where players started really um, taking care of each other and, and really caring about each other. And unfortunately, we saw a couple of um, suicides from some younger players, under-20s guys, who uh, had some shocking injuries and um, potentially you know, uh, felt that pressure that they were providing for their family and, and, um, and it was too much for them uh, without knowing everything about them. That's what it appeared to be. And, uh, and from that, the NRL... Uh, develop their state of mind program, which is all around mental health education, reducing that stigma around uh, mental ill health. And uh, along along with that program, um, they educated all the players. Uh, and, and they thought if they're going to go to the community, they've got to start with the players. Uh, and they taught us a lot of things around practicing gratitude, practicing mindfulness, empathy, those three tools of resilience and um, yeah, was that know, received? Oh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's pretty out there stuff. It, it is. Oh, you know, at the time for the yeah. players. There's probably guys listening right now that go, mindfulness, yeah, what that? What's that? Hey, that shit, mate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> I remember when I was at the Titans and they said, oh, we're going to do some uh, mental recovery as well as physical recovery. And everyone's like, what the hell is that? And uh, normally it looked like we'd have a two, three-hour field session, come and have a shower, stretch, ice baths, and go up to the lunchroom. You know, all the training sessions are catered these days. And uh, But then we had the mental recovery. After the showers, they made a stop into a sort of a function room and um, the squad of 30 boys, 30 overgrown teenagers basically it is. Um, you you lie, lay down your back and, and the trainer would dim the lights. He'd close your eyes and he'd put on a 10-minute guided meditation and the boys... <laughs> As soon as it went silent and dark, a few of the boys made fart noise and thought it was hilarious. <laughs> took the piss out of it, but um, but then they stuck with it because they are professionals, most of them, and um, <laughs> we stuck with, it, I should say. And and um, after a couple of times, they started going, "Well, hang on a second, this isn't so silly. I actually feel good. I feel like I'm resetting. I'm relaxing. I'm I'm calming down because I'm always so jacked up with adrenaline from competing with each other and being aggressive um, all day long. So it's nice just to take a break from that." And, uh, and after a few more goes, they started rushing through their ice baths and stretching so they can get to the function room a little bit quicker. Didn't lights themselves, press play on the meditation app just to get a few more minutes because it felt so good. Uh, so things like that. And then they took that home into the home life too. And, and, they were, and myself included, we were doing um, some guided meditation help us not off to sleep at night. Uh, I was always one of those people that uh, you, can, um, you can turn things over in your head all day and never solve things and go... I'm dog tired now and you put your head on the pillow and just can't wait for a good night's sleep. And then those things pop back up again and, and they just control your mind and the, the hours tick away and the clock and, it's and one you're almost the watching morning. the clock and you're going, how am I still awake? The yeah, more you watch yeah. the clock, the worse it gets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but doing the mindfulness practice for me and for a lot of boys had a really profound effect on everyone where they didn't have to have a couple of glasses of wine unwind or um, didn't have to have a sleeping tablet you just learn how to um, unwind naturally through meditation so 
went from being some um, thing that you think hippies do or weirdos do, and uh, but then that's everyday practice for a lot of the boys. So it's really cool. Yeah, the environment's changed a lot, and um, these sort of things like mindfulness and practicing gratitude—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a daily habit for the majority of our top rugby league players. Is that something you've carried into your post footy life? Yeah. So uh, when I retired, uh, I started working for the NRL State of Mind program. So I love getting around to the communities and um, talking to them about mental health and. Um, we use a lot of uh, videos of players like Michael Morgan and Joel Thompson and um, Darius Boyd. Yeah, Joel Thompson. I see a lot of his stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, he's a great sort of leader in that space where just sharing his story, um, he gets a lot out of it. He gets a bit of a relief knowing that he's helping other people. Um, and and he just – there's a lot of people that can relate to people like him and Darius with those early life experiences they had Uh um, you know, coming from split families or s- witnessing domestic violence or substance abuse or those sorts of things that um, shape their outlook on life to, to be a lot different to a lot of other people's. So them sharing that story, um, it, it's a pretty common story and uh, I know the community gets a hell of a lot out of it. So, um, yeah, I love doing that and I love talking about uh, gratitude and mindfulness and um, they're things I still do today, so it's good. Mate, it's awesome. I mean, you, uh, beginning of 2017, you retired due to chronic... Injuries? Yep. That point uh, in your life, did you feel as though you were stepping away, you were vulnerable again and, and, and losing a sense of purpose? Because, yeah, by then you'd played for Australia, you'd played for the Maroons. You Done know, it all. Dynasty side, mm. by the way. So to then, yeah, to be spat out the other side of that system, where were you at there? Run us through that. Yeah, it's a funny feeling because uh, when you, you sign your first contract, everyone drills into you how you know this is not going to last forever. And so you have who, this, who who would that like who who's oh, your parents, your family, your friends, yeah. senior players, club officials, they all say to you, um, <laughs> you need to do some study because your rugby league career doesn't go forever. Maybe you reach your third like when I started playing, that's when Webkey and them were sort of retiring and um, thirty was was old then uh, to play. But then Petro and Steve Price and Lockie, they went through to like thirty five, thirty six, so um, yeah, it's it sort of, they paved the way for people to extend their careers, but generally 30 was about the end of the road for a lot of people. So when you're 19 signing a contract, you go, well, it's going to be done by the time of 30 and you always have one eye on what you're doing and one eye on retirement. So you do a bit of study and you start thinking about what will I do if um, things end today or at the end of the year. Uh, so then finally, um, I was 33 roughly, 34 and, and retired. And uh, so that day finally came that people talked about since I was 18 and, uh, it, was, it was very weird because part of me was exhausted from playing uh, mentally and physically. Like my body was rooted. Um, I had two, two shoulder recos, both my hands done, three knee recos. And so wow. you're sort of hobbling around. You can barely tackle. And, I know blokes have done um, one knee reconstruction I've, I've had and one, said that they would yeah. never play sport again. I've <laughs> had one knee reconstruction. I would never want to go through that <laughs> process again. Yeah, so you're just you're physically and mentally exhausted. So you're kind of um, excited about retiring. Like I'm getting off that roller coaster of the ups and downs and the injuries, and uh, but then it's bloody scary too because you go, well, this is all I've ever done my whole life. I went from school and uh, mum and dad lived under their their roof and they took care of me and and then all of a sudden I'm in this system, this sort of fishbowl existence where the clubs take care of you all the time as well and then you spat out and just on your own and you have to take care of yourself then. Uh, and you go from the top of the food chain, so to speak, like you're. Mm. Um, if it was in a different field, a different industry, you'd be considered an expert in your field. You're the top one percent of performers, I guess. Uh, so you go from being an expert in your field to being an absolute rookie, an apprentice. Mm. So, 
Back to square one. It's a diff- It's a weird feeling like that. Um, but then also a lot of it is identity as well. And not as in, oh, people won't recognise me anymore or I'm not famous anymore or anything like that. It's not about that. It's just that all my life I'd identified uh, as a rugby league player. And it really hit me one time. And uh, so I started working for the NRL about three months after I retired. I was called a project officer for the State of Mind program. And, uh, and these people in Coffs Harbour were organising a mental health awareness day and they invited me down there and, and I thought they were inviting me down as the project officer for the NRL. And the lady organised didn't really, she didn't mean any harm by it and she didn't really understand what I was going through, I guess. But when I got down there, she started introducing me to everyone as the Titans front rower, David Shillington. And uh, these kids are come up to me and they go, oh, are you the Titans front rower, Dave Shillington? And I go, yeah, oh, no, nah, um... Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> listen, I didn't know how to answer them because I'd always just said, yes, that, that is who I am. And and it was at that moment I was I was like, no, well, you can't keep saying that. You're, you've been retired for three months now. You've got a new job. You're, you're an office worker or whatever you call yourself. And, uh, and I remember uh, after I got asked half a dozen times, I could finally confidently go, oh, well, no, I, I used to play for the NRL and used to be a Titans prop. Now I work for the NRL in the community department, and it, but it took a lot to sort of make that cut away transition, yeah, and, and be confident and comfortable saying that. And I remember driving home that night, going, "Wow, this is me now, is it? I better get used to it because I'm never going back." Uh, but it's when when you've um, that's all you've ever known. Uh, it, it, it is hard. So it's it's no different for other people in life. If you're working a job for forty years and get made redundant, or uh, your wife or your husband um, passes away, or you separate. Um, and you just by yourself now or you um, you don't have that significant sum on your life. So there's a lot of comparable situations and uh, so it's, but it's funny to go through it as a 33, 34-year-old. Well, you're still yeah. so young. Like, you're, mm. like that is such a young age to like be in a, a massive career transition as well, right? Like yeah. you're so much ahead of you. So, yeah. yeah, it must be super confusing to find that identity as you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know a lot of players, it takes them a few years and, and I'm probably – I am about two and a half years on now and – I'm getting pretty comfortable with it now. Every now and then I sort of wish I was back playing footy and I do miss it. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable now with, with who I am. So, Well, one of the interesting things that I heard when uh, Sam Thido retired, that must have been a year or so ago now, he was on uh, Breakfast Radio and was and saying it was a few months after he retired and he said it's weird because, you know, ever since I've been 18, I've been told what to eat, where to be at 9 o'clock, where to be at three o'clock on a Friday. Like I've been told my week's plan every week, every yeah. year since I was 18. And now I'm just flicked out. Yep. Into, it's sort of like finishing school again. You just sort of flicked out and you just yeah. free as you please. Mm. And that can be yeah. dangerous to some people because, well, what do you do? Going from such yeah. structure, structure to, to just yeah. unstructure. Yeah. Unlimited yeah. opportunities. Yeah. And you get everything provided for you too. And when, when Sam was saying uh, you get told where to be, you, you, you really do. Um, so, in Canberra, we'd have away games every second weekend. We'd have to catch a bus. So you'd get a, a schedule to say, at uh, 2.15, be at headquarters, wear these clothes. We'll have food provided for you. The bus will arrive at the hotel at 4.30 in Sydney, where you'll be required to go upstairs and do this for a stretch for half an hour. Then there'll be food provided for you here. Then we're going to do this. And, and you never had to think for yourself. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, uh, it, I sound like a dummy, but <laughs> I never thought I was someone having my head in the sand or anything. And, but then certain things happen, you're like... Wow, I really was babied all this time as a NRL player. And I, me- I remember when I retired and I had to take my daughter to um, to the doctors because uh, she had an um, ear infection, and and so you got to remember that uh, I left after school and to go down to Sydney. And when you're at school, your mum takes you to the doctor. And I'd seen 
the words bulk billing out the front of a, the doctor's surgery before and I've I'd never really taken in what it is. And because uh, and mum goes in and she books the appointment for you, takes you in and see the doctor, you get a jelly bean and she pays and then you go. Uh, it's, then you, you move to Sydney with the roosters and I, I got injured in my third week there. I think I, I strained my quad and, and the trainer drove me straight to this uh, medical practice in Kensington and um, and Liz, uh, she was the uh, the physio there. You, you walk straight in, you don't make an appointment and she could be treating anyone else, like general public, and she'll push me off the table and put you on and treat you right there and then. Uh, then you walk out, you don't pay for anything, you just um, just get, get on with your life. Uh, and then and throughout your career, the, the um, admin staff will bring down like 10, 10 Medicare forms, 10 HCF forms, and you just sign them and you wouldn't date them and they'd fill out all the paperwork for you in the background <laughs> as things happened. Uh, Living. So you'd, you'd never see a bill. <laughs> um, so then um, when my daughter had an earache, uh, I had to take it to the doctor's. My wife made the appointment for it, as you expect. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I, I took her down and, and the doctor checked her ear and goes, oh, he's a script for some drops and um, have a good day. And we, we, we walked out of the, um, the examining room and I walked up to the counter to the uh, receptionist and said, all right, uh, all done there, thanks. And she goes, all right, then um, have a good day. And I went, yeah, no worries. Um, and pulled out my wallet and I uh, said, oh, how much will that be today to fix up the bill? And she goes, oh, that's all bulk billed today. I went, okay, cool, yep. And had my FPOS card to fix up the account. She goes, so there's nothing to pay? And I went, that's what bulk bill is. No worries. <laughs> Thanks, Medicare levy. Yes. Oh, and uh, wandered on down there and called my wife and went, I know what bulk bill is. <laughs> I just learned something. Yes. That's oh, awesome. wow. I love that. Uh, so that's how much you're taken care of. And, and then all of a sudden you're in the real world and you have to fend for yourself. So even though it's, it's comical, it's, it's also reality. How, how how also do people deal with the structure as well? So each week you're sort of stuck in the machine, you know, mm. you're 26 weeks and then you got if you could play finals and then if you go from finals and you're also playing, you know, rep footy at the end of the year. Like how, how are they the, the setting the weeks up so you are getting time away for yourself and like looking after just you? It's changed a lot. Um, it changed after I finished up. So it's just been the last couple of years. And uh, the Rugby League Players Association, which is a union for the for the boys, uh, they have got stronger and stronger every year. And, and they're starting to put things in place in the collective bargaining agreement where um, players get a set day off every week. And it's, it's their time uh, because, um, as you say, uh, when you come back November 1, November 7, around there for pre-season, you basically have a break for Christmas. But otherwise, you don't really break until hopefully October when you're in the grand final uh, and, and it's maybe two buys during the year and they might give you might give you two days off or three days off but otherwise it's a six or seven day a week job and you're playing um, origin too I suppose yeah so and then it was always that you're always at the mercy of your coach to give you a, a few days off and uh, I know you hear stories about Wayne Bennett would give the uh, Broncos boys a week off every week and they'd go to Bali or something like that and have fun and we're always so jealous of those boys because <laughs> their coach um, recognised that it's good to have a break and you'll come back more refreshed. Uh, but not every coach was like that. Uh, thankfully, but now, yeah, the boys get at least one day off. They can use that to study and prepare for life after footy or they can just have straight family time and, and relax and uh, and they're starting to recognise uh, now more that, um, uh, I guess, um, stress in life, whether it's physical or mental, it's it's good for you in a way as long as you get a break to recover from the stress. Stress makes it stronger, but we need the recovery to grow, to grow stronger again. So, yeah. You're talking about uh, Wayne Bennett, and obviously he understands that his players need that break, like a week off and have the, the benefits that it has, you know, in yep. their performance as well. 
you, we were talking about Sticky Ricky earlier as well. Yep. And, you yep. know, obviously you've played under <laughs> Sticky Ricky. <laughs> you've obviously played under, you know, a fair few coaches and, and coaching styles are obviously different across the board. But yep. what were your relationships with your coaches like? And, yep. you know, how, you know, what's you, how were you best, like, coached, I yeah. guess? It's, I haven't really asked yeah, that what very well. Best, but like, what, what worked best, best for you? you? Yeah. yeah, I think, um, once again, uh, Brad Filler, he – he was fantastic for me in that I had Ricky uh, in my first few years in first grade at the Roosters and uh, and he'd come off a lot of success there. 02, 03, 04 in the grand finals, um, one yeah. in 02. Because he won it in his first year, didn't he? He did, Maybe, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then by the time I got in there, uh, Brad Fitley retired, um, Luke Rickardson was retiring and all, all these names were sort of dropping away and or moving to other clubs and uh, – it was a bit of a transition. They, they blooded all these rookies, including myself. And my first year in first grade, unfortunately, I came with five rounds to go and the team had been going um, pretty ordinary all year and they had to win all those last five games to be a chance of making the finals. So I came right into this pressure cooker. Uh, so I was under pr- well, we were under pr- pressure as players, but Ricky was as a coach as well. So he was pretty, he was pretty angry, I guess, at that time. Uh, and and he, he trained us pretty hard. And uh, he used to talk a lot about um, aggression and getting a bit of, can you say C-U-N-T in this one? <laughs> Better we, bleep that out. My mother will have a <laughs> bloody conniption. Uh, well, you used to talk about that a lot, you know, and just getting, getting yeah. angry out there. Yeah. Get and a bit of aggro in you. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, and I and I, I knew what he was talking about. There's nothing uh, more frustrating um, for a fan than a, a big front row who's bloody useless, you know, <laughs> and won't, go, won't play tough. George uh, Burgess last yeah. three years. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um, so... I, I get it, I got it, but um, but I was I was raised, I guess, um, in a family where I was told to be polite and respectful and uh, to stand back, not in people's faces, and uh, and and just be a courteous sort of gentle guy. And so that didn't um, obviously fit well with um, the the mold you needed to be as a front rower. So for me, uh, in the early days of my career, it was a really forced thing to do to be aggressive and felt um, unnatural to you. Yeah, massively, uh, just because. I was a happy, placid, sort of laid-back guy. And, but then when Freddie took over, he reframed it for me and he talked about being competitive and dominant and leading your team forward and, and the selfless act of if you're running hard, um, bouncing people out of the way and getting a quick play of the ball, the guy behind you gets a great run because he's got the defense, you've got the defense on the back foot for him. Uh, and he talks about that sort of selfless act and the competitiveness of it and, and my, my roles and responsibilities for the team. Yeah, it's and not for you, it's for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And that just it just clicked differently for me and, and I thought, yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to be a, a dirty mongrel out there. I'm just I'm trying to win and be uh, competitive and um and yeah, it, it did wonders for my career and um yeah, that was two thousand eight and I played some really good footy that year. Um, for some people listening to me or rugby league fans, they might think I'm being a bit contradictory because later in my career, I did get in a few punch-ups with different players <laughs> and headbutted someone, and so I got a bit of dirtiness about does me. Does anyone? Does times. It, what's it like headbutting someone? <laughs> no one wins in a headbutt, do they? Uh, it's, it, was, it was more of a love tap actually. It was my, my 200th first grade game. Uh, we played the uh, West Tigers, and I'd signed to go uh, to the Titans that next year. And our season was on the line too at the Raiders at that time, trying to make the finals. What year is this? Uh, 2015, I think it was. Yeah, or 14. Okay. My last yep. year there. And yeah, our season was on the line and, and there was a minute to go. We we're rucking up the field and uh, and I, t- I took a big barnstorming run. It was pretty good and um, 
beeline for Robbie Farrow and um, the and Barrow. He um, he clinged onto the ball and uh, and then they brought me down and um, as they brought me down, uh, Robbie just um, sneakily pulled the ball out of my hands. It was, it was a dead set strip. And uh, and I blew up to the ref because the ref called it a knock on and said it was a loose carry, which was rubbish. <laughs> and um, and I had a bit of a whinge, a bit of a sook, and and then um, Aaron Woods and Robbie Farrell all started ripping into me, probably deservedly. I shouldn't have had a sook like that on the field. <laughs> and uh, and then they were mouthing off, going, um, uh, especially Aaron Woods, he's going, oh, suck shit, Schiller. You just cost the Raiders the rest of the year. Uh, your head's already up at the Gold Coast, hey? You, you might as well move up tomorrow, mate. You just cost me. He was ironing me out, hey? <laughs> verbally. Um, and I was just like, uh, F this guy. I'm not copping this. And then uh, when we packed in the scrum, I, I, I led with my head. And, and then he had a bit of a sook to the ref because the, the scrum <laughs> sort of broke up a bit. And uh, and then I gave a mouthful saying, oh, trying to get the ref to take care of you, are you mate? Come on, handle like a man. And just one of those heat of the moment things you do on the footy field. And then so the next scrum, um, we did it again. And then it sort of broke up into a push and shove. And um, and everyone sort of, when there's a footy fight, you have to get the first punch in. Otherwise, um, <laughs> otherwise people hold your arms down. It's all over and it's just people cuddle each other. But I was so, <laughs> he, he got he got under my skin so bad uh, that I just, I had to get blood somehow. So I just, Launched my head forward and tried to headbutt him, <laughs> and uh, but I just clipped him. It was more of a love tap, actually. To be honest, I probably kissed my wife harder than I t- my head t- touched his uh, touched his forehead, uh, and uh, yeah, I got sent off. And um, so yeah, Woodsy got the last laugh there, and Buggering. there's no um, no grudges held or anything. Robbie Farris made a mind too now, but um, we've roomed together in, in Kangaroo too. He's a legend, but. When stuff like happens on the field, you don't you don't hold against people. But yeah, what talking about talking <laughs> yeah, about awesome. that relationship with other players? How you know? I mean, there's only three of us in our office here at the moment, and you know, Dan and I have heated exchanges on the daily. So imagine being in a. a, he, a he said you're really moody, but yeah, so. I know I'm moody. <laughs> I am, but having thirty blokes of varying ages, varying positions, skill levels, everything. If you guys, you know, you're not all going to get along. No, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's a massive um, melting pot of different personalities, and uh, and and that's what head coaching, I think, uh, has been described as uh, more accurately these days. And why Wayne Bennett's so successful is he's a people manager. He he gets to know his players and uh, learns out learns how to motivate them. What's going on in their personal life? Are they studying? Are they in a relationship? What's the, what's um, their family like? And uh, and he knows how to keep them uh, interested, engaged, and, and performing. So uh, that's why. He's been coaching the top level for donkey's years and he's just a great um, people manager. Yeah, right. So that's what, what I was getting at when I was, yeah, that coaching question because yeah. that's what it's all about, you know, getting the best out of your players. It's, you're not just, yeah. you're, you're all individuals at the end of the day and, and all completely different. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. obviously Wayne's got that down pat and, you know. Well, how do you work those things? Obviously doing lots of team stuff, team building yep. stuff, but what do you do if there's a, like a, someone you're not getting along with? How do you manage that? What are they, what are they doing to... You know, one of the best things they did was at the Titans, actually, and uh, and we didn't have a great year. We still made the finals. That was when Jared Hayne came back with um, five or six games to go, and uh, the ha- we paid him about $10 million. Hayne he, camera. But he sold out the stadium for us. Yeah. And, uh, so that was that year, and so it was a somewhat successful year for the Titans. And, and what they did is they had cleaned out half the squad when I got there, so almost no one knew each other. 
And uh, Neil Henry was a fairly new coach to that squad as well because John Cartwright had been let go before that. That's right, yeah. So what they did is they took us out um, to the army training camp at, at Canungra there in the back of the Gold Coast. And it's I think it's called the Kokoda Trail uh, that we had to hike through every day. And um, they didn't actually tell us what we're doing. They said, you're going on a camp. And a few rumours went around, but they said, don't pack anything, basically. <laughs> so um, they provided us all with tents, um, some food rations and... Uh, they woke us up every night, but they worked us all day until about 10 p.m. And then said, go to bed. You had to build your own tents and cook your own food. And we got to sleep about midnight, roughly. And then they drove around in, in their utes and honked their horns and woke us up at midnight. Marched us through the bush for three hours and uh, and went back to bed about four. Then got back up about five. And we did that three days in a row. And uh, it was it was bloody tough stuff. But what it did is it really galvanizes everyone's um, everyone dropped their guards. No one was walking with any swagger or trying to be cool or funny. We just had to stick together and and drag each other through it and support each other uh, because everyone was, yeah, they were very uncomfortable, vulnerable, and just uh, they needed help and Burton. yeah. So what they did that that. Um, it, it, let us get to know each other really well. Uh, broke down a lot of um, uncomfortable barriers that we'd normally have with egos coming together and new people being not real sociable or gelling together. So uh, I think I think a lot of teams do do army camps. And I've done one before that that was didn't really hit the mark, but this one of the Titans was fantastic because you can hear those ones that go both ways. Because I'm a mad <laughs> rabbit supporter, <clears throat> and there's stories about you know Mad just got a whole thing about army camps, like he's renowned for army camps yeah. preseason. Yep. and there's a Story, I think it was on a podcast. Oh, yeah, it was the Sam Burgess podcast with Matty Johns. He was talking about the, yeah, 2014, beginning of 2014 season. Ben Tao just walked out, told Madge to shove it. I'm leaving. I'm not doing this. I'm a rugby league player. I'm not doing this yeah. anymore, you know? Yeah. So well, that's, um, I heard down in Melbourne, because Melbourne traditionally put all their new players through the sleep deprivation army camp. I'm not sure if they still <laughs> do it, but they did it when um, Brett Finch went down there. And uh, I remember Finchie saying um, the, the guys running it at the time, I don't know if it was different just for that occasion, but at that time, because uh, their whole idea is to break you. Um, yeah. verbally, physically, um, they just try and make you feel like you're nothing, you know, just to get you to snap. Um, and this guy was trying to get Finchie to snap and he was saying, come on, mate, if you want to be tough, if you want to make it in first grade, if you want to be an NRL player one day, and thought he was a rookie because traditionally it was always rookies that came down and did these camps. But Finchie came played down with a few grand yeah, finals, 200 yeah. games under his <laughs> belt and, and Finchie's like, what are you talking about, mate? I've been playing for the last 10 years. <laughs> so I think they can miss the mark, but generally speaking, um, they're fantastic. So Yeah, right. That's yeah. awesome. We should talk a little bit about some post-footy stuff. Yeah. Life yeah. after footy. Yeah. You're two and a half years deep now. What um how has it panned out for you? Yeah, it's um it's good. I'm I'm really enjoying the life after football. Mm-hmm. Um, I love staying connected with it. Definitely, I never wanted to go into coaching. Uh, whilst I thought I could have had something to offer with it, just um, by gathering all the information over the years from different coaches like Ricky and Freddie and Mel and those sort of guys, I thought maybe I could present this in a good way for the next generation of players, but. Um, it just takes up your whole life as a coach and as a player. I wanted my weekends back. I wanted to put my, my wife and my kids first and, um, and and just put that behind me and settle into more of a normal life. So, yeah, I've, I've done that and um, I, I've tried a few different things. I've, I've definitely stuck with the NRL consistently and, and enjoyed doing that state of mind program. Uh, so we, we get around to most of Australia really, but predominantly um, Queensland, Northern Territory, 
uh, and New South Wales, and we talk to the NRL, uh, the rugby league communities about uh, mental health and try and reduce that stigma. So that that's been really good. Um, doing a little bit of work with um, Josh Quamby from Blokeopedia, um, he's a legend, Josh, and uh, doing a, doing a really good thing there, um, having uh, conversations that matter. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, one of the pleasing things when you play footy all your life, it's, it's never a job. I never got up and said to my wife or anyone, um, "Oh, off to work. I'll see you when I get home from work." You just you just don't do that. You just plan footy, and uh, luckily you get paid for it. So when you retire and you actually have to go to work, you have to be accountable to people. You want to make sure it's uh, meaningful and, and worthwhile. Uh, so working for the NRL and and, and Blokepedia, uh, they are that is worthwhile things and uh, and. We were talking about earlier that one of the great things about Blokeopedia is uh, we're really just, we've obviously identified, like you guys have, that uh, men struggle to talk about things sometimes and, and they bottle it up and sometimes it becomes overwhelming for them and causes all sorts of heartache or mental illness or suicide. And, uh, and, and so we're trying to have conversations that matter and really reframe how men view mental health. It, I think mental health, I heard someone say once before, it needs a rebrand. <laughs> you need mm. to take the mental out of health and... I don't know how you describe it, but if you can come up with a new name for mental health, um, you're a genius and you do a lot of, a lot of people, mm. a lot of favours. Well, I mean, it really is a great thing, though. I mean, because you just you nailed it before when you were telling us about, you know, when you embrace your mental health, how, mm. how you know, the vast improvement in your footy career, right? Yeah. And that's like something that no, like, I wouldn't have had a clue about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? For yep. a bloke like you. Mm. I mean, obviously, we're in the mental health space now, but you sort of start to embrace that and understand it. But like how important do you think it is to have, you know, recognisable guys like yourself and yep. like your B Derbages and your Mark Ocalupos yeah. and all these sorts of guys talking openly about your own experiences? Yeah, so, I mean, traditionally that stigma is there because you think someone who talks about their, their mental health or, or their struggles, you think they're soft or weak. You know, they're the sort of words you hear. Uh, but when in the State of Mind program you've got Darius Boyd, Dan Gagai, Michael Borgen, uh, guys who play State of Origin, which we all think is the toughest sporting arena in Australia, maybe the world. Um, they are hard men, very tough. Uh, and them talking about their struggles, that doesn't fall in line with that you're weak or you're soft um, stigma. And then you've got people like Mark Ocalupo and B. Durbridge, who spoke at the recent Blackopedia event, and um, they don't get much cooler than Oki. <laughs> he is the man, world champion um, in surfing. He's on the pro tour in his teens, and uh, he had his ups and downs, and and he was happy to talk about it. And, and Bede, um, he's, uh, he gets barreled off his head at Pipeline and uh, he's, he's a wild, uh, like, ballsy man to do that. Um, I, I would never paddle onto one of those waves. But he does it. He does it well. And, and he was talking about it too. And I remember after the Blokopedia event the other week and we're down at the Bolter Brewery and, um, and, and they got, the boys got off the stage and I was talking to Bede and he goes, oh, Hagel was Oki up there. It was awesome to hear him talking like that. And I thought to myself, it wouldn't have been that many years ago where if someone was talking like that, they get ridiculed and laughed at. You know, Oki talking about his up and ups and downs. But then here is Bede, another legend, saying, good on him. What a legend for talking like that. So when you've got those kind of guys um, talking about their struggles and those state of origin players, I think it really reframes that conversation around mental health. It's a massive shift happening. There is, you know, like, yeah. there, I, there wouldn't even, I couldn't even think of a rugby league player 20 years ago that would have done what you're doing, you know what I mean? And there's heaps now. Mm. So it's such a positive, refreshing entire thing happening around that shift, that cultural shift and, and just getting, you know, because, you know, people do idolise blokes like you, you know what I mean? Like, yep. and, and for that for people listening now that, you know, have watched you through your career and thinking, holy shit, you know, if he's done it, I, I can, you know, yeah. I can go and see someone, I can go and talk to someone. 
yeah. how to make that change. And you don't have to be down and out, I reckon. It's like investing in mental health is not just for people who are contemplating suicide or, or, or are struck down with depression or uh, racked with anxiety and they can't get out of bed. It's not just about that. And when you look at the mental health continuum, you, there's the green zone down to the red zone, but everywhere in between as well. So for me, when I was at the Roosters, you know, I was probably mid-range going towards red. I was, I was getting a bit down and out, but um, I, I wasn't suffering from depression. or I did have a lot of anxiety around my performances and fear of failure and that sort of thing, but... It wasn't interrupting my, my daily life um, really directly like that, but it was affecting me. So, But that was a time for me to invest in it, and, and thankfully things didn't get worse because someone um, called it out, I guess, and supported me. Uh, and I think of it like your physical health, right? So if, if you need to lose 50 kilos, you can get a personal trainer and help them burn off that 50 kilos. Um, but if you need to lose 5 kilos, sometimes you get a personal trainer too. And then there's other people who are ultra fit and get a trainer to stay ultra fit. So it's the same for psychologists and counsellors or just day-to-day practice for mental health. You don't need to be trying to shed 50 kilos and down and out. Um, you could just look for a little top-up or you're a high performer that's trying to get an edge on other people. So just working that's, on that's it. mental health. Or you've got your Freddie Fittlers who checks in with Angus, just checking right. in. Like yeah. for, for no real particular reason sometimes. It's yeah. just like someone else to have a yarn with. You That's know, right. just a sounding board for, for, for absolutely anything. Yeah. So you know yourselves, um sometimes you have a good good yarn with someone and uh and just it just feels good and you get something off your chest and that weight off your shoulders a bit. Yeah, there was no agenda for it or anything like that. You just fell into a deep conversation and uh, and it just feels good. So but there's a lot of people who are just so guarded that they don't have those conversations. So I was um, gonna say that there must be in a particularly in, you know, rugby league, there'd be a lot of young footy players who have, you know, feel like they have to put on this big, you know, tough macho bravado type, you know, image. Yeah. You know, to protect their, yeah, their, I mean, their ego, I guess it is, or to try and prove themselves, you know, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it must be, yeah, such a, such a tough thing to go through. Yeah. yeah. Well, thankfully, we've got really good senior players these days, and uh, and, and that's that's what matters in organisations, I think, is, is leadership, and that, that directs the culture, and uh, when you've got the good leaders in there uh, talking about their mental health, encouraging boys to take care of themselves, um, that helps um, shift things too. Mate, I just... We'll be sort of winding up here, I guess, but uh, you told us a funny story before we came in here about when you got called up to Origin Camp, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> which I think the listeners would appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, um, geez, it was a roller coaster. I got caught by surprise when I got called in Origin and... Uh, I hope Milesy doesn't um, mind me telling this story, but oh, uh, do Nate Miles listening to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, wait, give us five stars, Milesy. Yeah, no, no, he's um, no, he's a legend, Milesy. He would he wouldn't mind. But uh, uh, so it was game three, um, two thousand and nine, and I was playing pretty good footy at the Raiders, and I thought I might be a bit of a chance. Um, but you never count your chickens, and it's more hopeful um, that. If someone gets injured, hopefully you're the ne- next cab off the rank and get a start. And and the way it works is uh, um, when the the media announces on the Tuesday the, uh, the, what the team is, uh, you've already been told on a Sunday night, and uh, most people know that. And then Monday you catch a plane to Brisbane or you come into camp in Brisbane. Tuesday morning the media announces it. Um, so you're already in camp then. So Sunday night rolled around. And I went to bed and woke up in the morning. I went, oh, oh well, I mustn't have made it this year and – Team would have been the guys would have been informed yesterday. Oh well, next year I'll keep working hard and come back stronger next year. And then Monday night, my phone rang and it was it was the uh, the Raiders team manager, and he goes, "Shiller, congratulations, mate! You've been picked in the Maroon side." I was like, "What? Is this is this a joke? Is this some sort of prank?" 
how come you didn't tell me last night? He goes, mate, I don't know. They, they've told me you're in camp and uh, you need to get on a plane in the morning and fly out to Brizzy. I went, oh, it's incredible, fantastic. I don't know how that's happened. They must have changed their processes and, and they're not telling people till Monday night now. And so uh, I'd flown into camp Tuesday morning and, and um, as I flew in, uh, the news broke that um, Milesy had had a big night out at the Central Coast on the on the Sunday night, and I think he'd um, I think he must have had an adverse reaction to sleeping tablets or something, and locked himself out of his room, um, had crook guts, and <laughs> he um, had to relieve himself in the um, in the stairwell. Uh, the poor fella. So um, <laughs> he, he that's a, an awful situation. Oh. <laughs> He, um, so yeah, the, that broke on, on Monday, um, behind the scenes, I guess. And the, the QRL found about, out about it and, uh, and, and they, just, they met and decided, well, we, we have to stand him down. This is about to hit the media and we can't have him in the team. And, and that is a distraction this week. It'll, it'll disrupt the whole camp. So, um, and they decided to leave him out of the team and, and they replaced him with me. Uh, and, and they didn't tell you any of that stuff. We just all found out about it retrospectively. Uh, but it was such a late decision uh, that for me getting called up that my name wasn't even on the room list at the hotel. And uh, and here I was, first day in camp, rocked up to the hotel in, in the Brisbane CBD. and Chest puffed out. Yeah, strolled up <laughs> to the counter. Get out, let's grab my keys to the room. Dave Shillington and the Maroons team, thank you. And uh, <laughs> she looks down at the list, the receptionist, and goes... Shillington, Shillington, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> Almost like Happy Gilmore, better luck next year. <laughs> um, and I wasn't on the list and I was oh, so embarrassed. I shrunk to um, about six foot down from six five. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Sam Thido was behind me. We'd, we'd just found out the news about poor old Milesy. And so Sam looked over the counter and, and saw Milesy's name on the list and said, that's your room, Shilla. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. That's that's Milesy's room. He's like, well, he's not going to be here and and – we love him and um, we feel for him, but this, this is your time now. You've got to do it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take Miles' keys. And I actually felt shocking about it because no one wishes anybody to go through the drama that he had to go through. And he's a great fella and obviously he made a mistake. So, uh, But in saying that, I wanted to take the opportunity with two hands. And um, so that was um, that was done my debut. I went through all camp that week and, and played the following Wednesday. Um yeah, so that, that game was a hectic game. It we, was, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah cool. we, we were talking about it before, weren't we? And um, Queensland had already won the series. It was a dead rubber, this one. And that was the game in 2009 where um, Brett White and Steve Price got in a bit of a punch-up late in the game. That's when you used to be able to punch in footy. And uh, and <laughs> Whitey, we didn't know at the time, but Whitey actually landed a beauty on Paul Price's chin and, and dropped him. But it was right at the same time that Trent Waterhouse came running in to sort of tackle Pricey out of the fight. And he didn't sort of coat hang him, didn't do anything. He just sort of tackled him out of the fight. But it was instantly after uh, Whitey connected a beauty on him. He was already knocked out, eh? He and was. he was falling and he hit him. Yeah. yeah. And but Gilly, Trevor Gilmeister was, um, was a trainer. He ran on the field <laughs> and he said, boys, it was Waterhouse, Waterhouse. He took him out and, and the boys were enraged, as you could imagine. Uh, and, and Lockie put up that big bomb. And everyone t- came screaming down. Hodjo and all them just wanted blood and tried to take off um, Gidley's head. That's and, right, yeah, um, Thiday. Oh, it was, um, it was pretty chaotic because the game was held up for about 10 minutes and yeah. poor old Price, he was in a bad state. And then and then when we bo- booted it down there and the game got held up again for another 10 minutes and all the fans wanted blood. And, yeah, so well, welcome to the State of Origin. Mate, it was <laughs> bananas. Awesome. Yeah, I was there that night. I remember Willie Ralston got us a ticket and it was... Mate, it was crazy. Yeah, it was That's hectic. And I remember when they put the bomb up, I was like, this is like 
schoolboy footy where we've just got the shits and we're just going to go down and bash someone. <laughs> yeah. hey, it was crazy, but it's not like that anymore. It's yeah. definitely changed. Unreal. Well, uh, Shiloh, mate, really good chat. I yeah. think our listeners are going to get a lot out of that. Um, a lot of key takeaways about, you know, help-seeking behaviour, showing a bit of vulnerability and... Um, going and having a yarn with going a professional. Just yarn. to have a yarn, mate. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I think uh, you can be strong and you can be tough and... You can headbutt people <laughs> it's, uh, on the footy field sometimes. You Kiss your wife there. harder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there are times where you have to talk about things and, and sort yourself out. So um, take those moments and uh, and you definitely feel a lot better for it. Awesome. Nothing wrong with a bit of vulnerability. That's right. Yeah. Good well, stuff. Well, mate, um, good luck in the future with everything. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to come along to a Blokeopedia event very soon. Do we make trademark shirts that big? <laughs> yeah, geez, we'll try and get those guns in. <laughs> <laughs> I have to cut the sleeves off. <laughs> Thanks, Sheila. It was great, mate. Okay, cheers, guys. If you're a fan of Trademutt's 120 Grit podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or shoot us an email at admin at trademutt.com.